All right, thank you. Um, let me pray for us as we begin. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have as a people who are able to read, as a people who are free to gather to study it. Thank you that you give us the gift of your, of your spirit to apply these words to our hearts, to empower us to live out the things that you teach us, you instruct us. And I pray now that you would do that as we look again at Paul's words in this letter to the Corinthians, that you would shape us to be your people in the world. Amen. All right, so yeah, from, from the Sunday after Easter up through now, we've walked through this series on being resurrection people that's based in this chunk of text in 2 Corinthians from 2.14 all the way to 7.4. And so if we look back, if we look at 2.12 and 13, kind of before where we started, right before where we started, Paul had said, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. And then he opens this, this section of the letter that we've worked through. But then in 7.5, after our text today, he picks right back up where he had left off there. He says, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comfort us, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So this whole portion from 2.14 all the way to 7.4 is a kind of breathtaking excursus where Paul defends his cross-shaped ministry by appealing to the broadest, the biggest of eschatological themes and realities. And our passage today is the conclusion of that breathtaking excursus. It's 2 Corinthians 7 verses 2 through 4. So let me read it. Paul says, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have ruined no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I told you before that you are in our hearts so that we die together and live together with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride on your behalf. I am filled with encouragement. I am overflowing with joy in the midst of all our suffering. So, whoa. So seeing that um, this comes at the end of Paul's excursus, I thought I'd recap a little bit of where we've been. And so we started the whole series by looking at how the letter as a whole is framed by death and resurrection. And that's one reason it was so fitting for an Eastertide series. In chapter 1, Paul had said, We felt we had received the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. And then at the end of the letter, in chapter 13, he'd said, For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, 
and yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. And we've seen this theme of death and resurrection come up over and over and over again in the series. In 4, 10, and 12, Paul said, we are always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And then in 4.14, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. In chapter 5, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Then in chapter 6, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on. Okay? So this theme of death and resurrection saturates the letter. It saturates Paul's thought, and we see it again in our passage today. He says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I told you before that you are in our hearts so that we die together and live together with you. Okay, so that's death and resurrection. We've also seen how resurrection itself evokes the broadest of eschatological themes for Paul. Since, as we saw William Manson puts it, the resurrection and the outpouring of the Spirit on the church are the supreme sign of the eschaton. Right, so Paul has referenced in many different ways, sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly, a great many of Israel's eschatological hopes throughout this letter, throughout the portion of it that we've read. Okay, he's talked about forgiveness, we've seen return from exile, salvation and the rule of a messianic king, we've seen the gathering and obedience of the Gentiles, the nations, right, we've seen the new covenant, and even the new creation. And we've seen how, for Paul, he understands these eschatological hopes, these future realities to have been in, inaugurated in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in the outpouring of the Spirit. They've been, those future realities have been pulled back into the present so that they are both now and not yet in certain important ways. And then one thing that's very important in that now dimension of these realities is the dimension that, of how it all comes about in Christ. Okay, participation in Christ is what gives us access to all those eschatological realities and more. Okay, to put it as Paul does in chapter 1, all God's promises are yes in Jesus. Okay, we have the image and glory of God restored to us. Our sins are cleansed and we are the righteousness of God we share in the victory and the salvation of the Lamb. We take on a new identity of royal priests of a holy nation and of sons and daughters. 
in Christ. So it's massively important. And to bring it back to the theme of death and resurrection, many, if not most, of those different realities that we participate in, or or the passages that, that talk about our union with Christ, our participation in Christ, they do that directly in terms of, of dying and rising with him. Right? So in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In Romans 6.5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. In Romans 8, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Philippians 3, my aim is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, being like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. In Ephesians 2, he says, When we were dead in transgressions, God co-made us alive and co-raised and co-seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy 2, here's a trustworthy saying, If we co-died, we will also co-live. And so in light of our passage today, and these various things that we've been through over the course of this series, I wanted to pause for a brief comment on those, those last two passages in Ephesians 2 and in 2 Timothy 2. So I've translated what Paul says here. Um, sorry, this is, there we go. Um, I've translated what Paul says here with co-prefixes to reflect the language that he actually uses rather than good English usage. Because he uses words that start with, with the Greek prefix soon. It's what comes through in English in words like synergy or synchronous or synonym. And what it means is with or together. And so what Paul says in, in Ephesians 2, 4 through 6, literally, is when we were dead in transgressions, God co-made alive us. Literally, um, co-alive make, right? Soon as zoepoiesen. And he co-raised, soon egeren. And he co-seated, soon ekathesen, us in the heavenly places in Christ. Okay, in 2 Timothy 2.11, it's the same words that he'll use in our passage. Here's a trustworthy saying, if we co-died, soon apathanamen, we will also co-live, suzane, with you. Sorry, with Christ. Um, And then today, I told you before that you are in our hearts so that we co-die, soon apathanen, and co-live, suzane, with you. So I point that out because of a couple of reasons. For one, it, it, it connects some things for us. But it also shows the intimacy of these ideas that Paul has communicated. Okay? We are intimately united with Christ in these various ways. It's what gives us access to these various realities. Being made alive, being seated in the heavenly places, okay? co-raised, raised together with him. It's all because we're united to Christ. If we, if we co-died, if in union died with Christ, we will also co-live with Christ. And because of this participation in Christ, because we all do that, 
that union with Christ unites us with one another. Those two things are intimately connected with one another. All right, this participation in Christ, what gives us access to all these eschatological realities that we've talked about, is the same thing that unites us with one another. And so again, everything that matters, right, comes from the fact that we participate in the death and life of Jesus. And it's the fact that we do this together, that participation in Christ unites us, that comes up in what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 7, with this theme of resurrection community. So the title of this whole series has been Resurrection People. Not resurrection persons, not resurrection disparate individuals, resurrection people. Okay. Now we opened the series back in April with a quote from Gordon Fee. And we're going to close out the series with a quote from just a few pages later in that same book. So if he says, although entered individually, the church as a whole is the object of God's saving activity in Christ. God is choosing and saving a people for his name. God is not just saving individuals and preparing them for heaven. Rather, he is creating a people among whom he can live and who in their life together will reproduce God's life and character. And Fee says further that perhaps nothing illustrates this point more or as vividly as two passages in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, which is the passage of the man who is um, having an affair with his, his father's um, wife, and 6, 1 through 11, where believers, brothers and sisters, have gone to court against each other in the secular courts. So where Paul speaks, in these passages, Paul speaks to rather flagrant sins of particular individuals. In both cases, Paul aims his heaviest artillery not at the individual sinners, but at the church for its failure to deal with these matters. In 5, 1 through 13, the man is not even spoken to. He's simply to be put out. And his partner is not mentioned at all. Everything is directed at the church for its arrogance on one hand and for its failure to act on the other. So also in 6, 1 through 11. In this case, Paul does not find, or in this case, Paul does finally speak to the plaintiff and to the defendant, but only after he has scored the church for allowing such a thing to happen at all among God's eschatological community, and then for failing to act. What is obviously at stake in these cases is the church itself and its role as God's redeemed and redemptive alternative to Corinth. Okay, so, so God doesn't save us independently from one another. We are saved to be God's eschatological community. The others-centered, self-giving community that lives by God's values rather than the self-centered, self-asserting values of the world. A community is something that we can only be together. 
So in support of this, Fee adds to that previous thing that this concern for God's saving a people for his glory is further demonstrated by the frequency of one of the most common but frequently overlooked words in Paul's ethical exhortations. Alelon, which sounds like all alone, but it means exactly the opposite. It means, it means one another, alelon, one another, or each other. He says, everything is done alelon. They are members of one another. Romans 12.5, Ephesians 4.25, who are to build up one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Romans 14.19, to care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12.25, to love one another. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, 4.9, 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Romans 13.8, to pursue one another's good. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, to bear with one another in love. Ephesians 4.2, to bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2, to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. Ephesians 4.32, compare with Colossians 3.13, to submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21, to consider one another better than ourselves. Philippians 2.3, compare with Romans 12.10, to be devoted to one another in love. Romans 12.10, to live in harmony with one another. Romans 12.16, so you see this is a very common theme for Paul. And again, if we look back at those various examples, they're, they're just saturated with the cross-shaped, other-centered, self-giving love that has come up time and time and time again in this letter as we've looked at it. And the fact is, it's easy to talk a good game about this one another kind of living when we do it in the abstract. But its true difficulty, its cross shape, is seen when people offend us, when people irritate us, when people hurt us. Okay, that when, when, it, when it comes down to the real flesh and blood in these pews, right, that's when we see the cross shape of this kind of one another living. And so the example from 1 Corinthians 6 involves people whose conflict had reached a point that it had gone to the secular courts. Okay, there was a lawsuit involved. And the fact that they, they, as a community, had let the conflict get to that point was to Paul a failure to be God's cross-shaped, reconciled people. They were supposed to be the alternative to the divided, competitive, self-serving, fleshly posture of the world around them. But following his crucified Savior, Paul says, you know, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be cheated? So notice the language of family that Paul is using here, right? Brother takes another to court. Okay, they and we are brothers and sisters by virtue 
of being united in the Son. We are God's sons and daughters. We are brothers and sisters because of our participation in Christ. Okay, but they were not acting like it in this case. So let me be clear. Paul is not advocating that they let people walk all over them. He's actually calling the church to pass judgment and to get things sorted out here. And also, just because we're in this passage, and I think it's important to say, this passage should not be used in dealing with instances of abuse in the church, gross abuse in the church, okay? Shameful as that is, those kinds of things do need to go to the authorities. This is a different kind of circumstance. All right, so, but in any case, in the absence of a resolution, okay, bearing the offense is better in Paul's eyes than letting the conflict fester to the point where it spills out into the courts of a watching secular world. That's not the example that resurrection people are supposed to set. Okay, we are called to be a reconciled people. We are called to be God's eschatological community. But reconciliation is hard, which is why it often takes the shape of a cross. And I think that Paul is actually modeling this in the part of 2 Corinthians that we've been through. And I think he's modeling it in our passage here today. Remember that Paul is writing to a church that had hurt him. Right? He, um, they, they had um, taken sides with these flashy imposters who had undermined him and insulted him. And Paul could have laced right back into them, right? He could have torn them down. He could have insulted them back. The fact that he embraced the weakness of the cross wasn't because he wasn't able to rhetorically compete with the best of them, right? He could have fought fire with fire, so to speak. He could also have just cut the Corinthians off, okay? Enough with you. Forget these folks. Trouble anyway, good riddance. He could have done that. But he doesn't do any of it. Now again, I want to reiterate that Paul doesn't just take things lying down. He's not letting them walk all over them. Conflict and division isn't dealt with by ignoring it. Dialogue and hard conversations are the only real way to work through such things. And we've seen that here. We've seen it elsewhere in the letter. Paul is clear and direct with them. He says his peace. He names the wrong. And he defends his cross-shaped approach to life and ministry. But he always does so with a view to reconciliation. And he always chooses to believe or to hope for the best in the people that he's in these hard conversations with. To be a resurrection people, to be God's eschatological people, is to be a reconciled people. We aren't crucified and raised with Christ alone. We die together and we live together. Make room for us in your hearts. 
We have wronged no one. We have ruined no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I told you before that you are in our hearts so that we die together and live together with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride on your behalf. I'm filled with encouragement. I'm overflowing with joy in the midst of all our suffering. Dear Lord, thank you for the good work that you are doing in the world. Thank you for what you began in the death and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit. Thank you that in Christ we have the privilege of participating in these glorious, wonderful realities already, even as we wait for them to come about in their fullness in anticipation. And as we do this, Lord, I pray that you would empower us by your Spirit to be your reconciled eschatological people in the world. Heal our hearts. Make it possible for us to have the kinds of conversations that are necessary when conflict arises. Help us to set the needs and interests of others before our own. Help us to think the best of those we're in conflict with, even when they hurt us. Help us to show forgiveness to others the way that you have forgiven us. And we pray, Lord, as you bring these things about in our lives, that we would be an example, that we would be a sign and a sacrament of what you are doing in the world to a community that sees us to a community that is deeply divided, that is deeply marked by schism and conflict and hatred and resentment, in a community that at times seems like it's ready to tear itself apart. I pray, Lord, that by our lives together, you would show the world another way, that we would be true evidence of your new creation. Amen.